After a wealth of experience, both as a local church pastor and a church health consultant, Tom Rayner has cataloged story after story of churches who missed the mark and wandered off the narrow way. The following story is one such example. He writes, To say the room was tense would be a massive understatement. It was eight years before the death of the church, but few in that room would have predicted the church's demise. The church had bounced back a bit during the past year, since most of the members would not allow any contemporary elements in the very staid and traditional service at 11 a.m. Some younger adults started their own contemporary service at 8.30. Bible study classes fit between the two services. Of course, the 8.30 service was really not that contemporary by modern standards. An acoustic guitar, some contemporary songs along with the more traditional hymns, a keyboard instead of the organ, but it was really more blended than anything. The new service did provide the first growth in the church in two decades. The previous year attendance had dipped from 75 to 62. But the new service added 30 people in average attendance. So the church was at a five-year high of 92 in worship attendance. As the younger adults invited friends to the first service, they kept hearing the same refrain. We like the service, but it would be better for us and our children if the service was later. The solution seems simple. Move the traditional service to 8.30 and the contemporary service to 11. Wrong. The change required a church vote. At least that's what some of the members said. No one could find any confirmation. So it was time for the meeting. It was time for the business session from Hades. There were about 150 people present. That included members who had not been to church in five years or more. That included people most others did not know. It was obvious what was taking place. Members had recruited others to come to the meeting to vote not to change. The exchange of words was harsh. Accusations were made. Guitars were declared to be of the devil. Sorry, Jacob. One member declared he would let the church die before that change was made. Well, he would get his way eight years later. The vote was not close. Nothing changed. Well, that's not exactly true. The first service ceased five weeks later. Attendance dropped to 43 by the end of the year. And less than eight years later, the church closed its doors. After years and years of interviews and documenting stories like this, Mr. Rayner says he believes he knows precisely what the common cancerous cause was of why many of these churches were declining and then closing its doors. He says this, quote, A significant number of the members of these churches moved the focus from others to themselves. And when a church moves in that direction, it is headed for decline and then death. The decline may be protracted and the death may be delayed, but it is inevitable. The church will die. A church cannot survive long-term where members are focused on their own preferences. My music style, my desired length and order of worship services, my desired color and design of buildings and rooms, my activities and programs, my need of ministers and staff, my, my, my. That's because membership in the church is not country club membership. It's not about paying your dues and getting perks. It's like Paul described in 1 Corinthians 12. We are members of the body of Christ. We do not exist to serve ourselves. Instead, we exist for the greater good of the body. A church, by definition, is a body of believers who function for the greater good of the congregation. In essence, when church members increasingly demand their own preferences, the church is steadily not becoming the church. It is therefore neither surprising nor unexpected, at least from an observer's point of view, when the church closes its doors. When that happens, the church really died before them because its members refused to be the church. A story like this sounds really sad, but silly, doesn't it? But hindsight is always 20-20. 
For those members of that church, they were swept up in the emotions of the moment, wrapped up in their own personal preferences and entrenched in their deep embedded assumptions about how the church should be done with little to no regard consulting Scripture as the authority. And it eventually led to its death. But friends, throughout church history, this has been the disheartening autopsy of many congregations throughout the world. It's been the disheartening story of many congregations maybe you grew up at or congregations you know about, even in our own community. But you see, once we get our eyes off the biblical Jesus, and once we take our focus off of serving for the greater good of the body of Christ, as sinners, we'll naturally put our focus where? On ourselves. And when we do that, that is always the first step towards decline, deception, and even destruction. And that goes for the life of a church, the life of a family, and the life of a professing Christian. But also consider for a moment just a brief sketch of church history and how weak theology and poor teaching can also lead to the same exact result. When we study creeds and councils of the first four centuries, such as creeds we confess here at CCBC on the Lord's Day, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Friends, those were written in response to false teachings about our Lord Jesus that had crept into the church. Or here we are in the month of October. There is something way more significant than Halloween that goes on in October. Do you know what that is? If you're in a Reformed Baptist church, you should know. Well, friends, it's, it's Reformation Day. October 31st, 1517, over 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the castle church door in Wittenberg. Why did he do that? It was protesting against Rome's false teachings of indulgences, thinking that we can somehow pay our way out of purgatory into glory. And friends, when we think about the decades leading up to the Protestant Reformation and coming out of it, Friends, great divisions and schisms arose against the Church of Rome and even the Church of England, which led to gospel-preaching churches being planted even here in America. Friends, even by churches that we get our theological roots from here at CCBC. But beloved, there is nothing truly new under the sun, is there? The same tests and challenges that have occurred throughout church history many years ago are the same types of challenges and tests churches are facing today, right now. And if we don't learn from the mistakes and errors of others in the past, we too will repeat them in our own lives and ministry, and we'll suffer the painful consequences for it. So whether it's the preference-driven church membership mindset, or spreading doctrinal heresy, or the fallout of church schisms that come about for all sorts of reasons. The fundamental issue stems largely from the same source, a false understanding of the gospel, the church, and the Christian life leads to false teaching and sinful behavior. But also an unhealthy preoccupation with me, myself, and I. When these spiritual maladies are working together, it can cause much damage to the worship and witness of a local church. Well, the Apostle Paul was no stranger to this sad and common dilemma, even in the churches he planted in the first century. And as we read these letters of 1 and 2 Timothy and even Titus, we see Paul's love and concern for the churches bleed who were in danger of falling away from the faith. You see, it was Christ's love for his church that propelled Paul to disciple and equip Timothy that he would love and shepherd the church in the same way Paul had in his ministry, which is where we turn our attention to this morning. If you have a copy of God's word, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 578, 2 Timothy 2. This morning, we pick back up in our current sermon series in 2 Timothy. 
And over the last few weeks, we've studied how Paul gave Timothy a list of commands and reminders for how Timothy was to remain faithful to his pastoral calling there in Ephesus. After emphasizing to Timothy his ongoing need for God's strength in the ministry, and after informing him of the mindset Timothy must have as a pastor, he was to have the mindset of a what? A good soldier, an athlete, a hardworking farmer. Timothy was then to preeminently then, as he had this mindset, keep Jesus Christ preeminent in his mind and the gospel front and center as he moved forward without Paul. And in doing so, Timothy would be freshly encouraged, freshly reminded of his need for endurance as the promise of God's election and salvation served as a motivating factor to not give up, but to keep going, to keep being faithful, to keep plotting. And thus we left off last week with a trustworthy saying that Timothy probably had memorized, as we might memorize Bible verses, Paul had delegated and imparted a trustworthy saying for Timothy to remind himself, especially when it was hot and difficult in the ministry. Notice what he says there, 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, which we left off last week. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This morning, we pick back up in verses 14 to 19, and we now hear Paul's next line of instructions for his beloved friend and co-labor in the ministry. 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is God's word. Members of CCBC, how do we not repeat the same errors as others of biblical faithlessness, which can lead people astray from Christ? How do we not repeat the same folly of preference-driven church membership, which can lead to a church's decline and death? Well, here's our main idea for this morning that will answer those two questions, followed by four main outline points. Main idea, I'll repeat it twice. If we love Jesus' church, we will do whatever he commands in order to preserve our church's worship and witness before God. If we love Jesus' church, we will do whatever he commands in order to preserve our church's worship and witness before God. Uh, to that end, Paul then gives Timothy three pastoral duties to carry out with one reassuring promise that would give Timothy unwavering confidence in the midst of difficult work ahead of him. Pastoral duty number one, Timothy was to warn the congregation for their spiritual protection by avoiding fruitless arguments. Timothy was to warn the congregation for their spiritual protection by avoiding fruitless arguments. That's verse 14. 
Pastoral duty number two. Timothy was to work hard at teaching God's word accurately. Timothy was to work hard at teaching God's word accurately. That's verse 15. Pastoral duty number three. Timothy was to identify problem makers in the church and warn others of their dangerous influence. Timothy was to identify problem makers in the church and warn others of their dangerous influence. That's verses 16 to 18. And then fourthly, Paul imparted one reassuring promise. God is in ultimate control, and he knows who belongs to him. God is in ultimate control, and he knows who belongs to him. Let's look at that first point together. Pastoral duty number one. Timothy was to warn the congregation for their spiritual protection by avoiding fruitless arguments. Look at me starting at verse 14. Paul writes, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Here Paul begins with the same emphasis that he's carried out in previous sections of this letter. He begins this next section with the need to remind or bring to remembrance something they probably already knew. Now, previous in this letter, there's been a lot mentioned so far, right? At least the frequency of it, of remembering, the importance of remembering in order to endure in the Christian life. In chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, we read of Paul's remembrance of Timothy's genuine faith, which also led to Paul reminding Timothy of God's grace and gifting on his life. And so what was Timothy to do? Because Paul was reminding him, he was to fan the flame, knowing that God gave him a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And then last week, we saw how that among everything coming at Timothy in the ministry, he must remember this one person above and before all other people. Timothy was to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Yet this time, Paul was not reminding Timothy of something he needed to do personally as much as he was called by God through Paul to bring to remembrance others to do something. This time, Timothy was to be the mouthpiece, to be the pastoral voice to the congregation in Ephesus that he was given jurisdiction over to lead, to teach, and to protect as a spiritual leader. Notice what he says there. That's why Paul says, remind them of these things. And we know that them and the is the congregation Paul has in mind based off that phrase at the very end of verse 14, the hearers. This is the same phraseology used previously in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, which describes believers that Timothy would pastor and preach to. It was his congregants, those who sat in their pews or whatever they sat in as they heard him teach and preach. But what was Paul exhorting Timothy to warn the congregation about? I mean, it's got to rise to something of significance or importance. If we warn anyone in our life, it's got to be something that could be dangerous or harmful. Well, he says he was to charge them. He was to warn them. He was to raise his voice and raise their attention. And notice what Paul says, before God. In other words, Timothy, you were not speaking into an empty vacuum of a room. Before God who is listening and before God who's in authority, you are to charge them before God, Timothy, not to quarrel about words. Now, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean they all walked around with their Oxford dictionaries and tried to stump each other on how to spell five-syllable words? Was this like first-century Jeopardy? Does that mean they had debates all night on whether it's correct to say pecan or pecan? Well, the phrase quarrel about words in the original language, it means to wrangle, to argue about empty and trifling matters. And 
this isn't the first time Paul actually mentions this word fight, this word arm wrestling, if you will, that goes on in Ephesus. Apparently, these contentious, wrangling, insignificant matters was a mixture of false teachers majoring on theological minors as well as twisting scripture that was undermining the gospel and threatening to rupture the unity of the church. But it wasn't just theological ping pong they were fighting about. It wasn't just some kind of doctrinal arm wrestling. No, friends, their hearts were not right with God. Do you ever have someone yell at you or accuse you or say all uncharitable and unfair things about you? Don't respond. Just listen. Because what you'll find out after a few minutes, their hearts are not right with God. Any type of hatred or vitriol or unjust, destructive criticism does not come from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the flesh. It is earthly. It is demonic, James 3 says. These false teachers had a hidden agenda that drove their contentious influence. Their hearts were caked with selfish ambition, which led to a divisive, me-centered attitude that drew prideful attention to themselves. In other words, these false teachers and their followers, they use their platforms for vain glory. Persuasive speech to draw people after them and follow them to undermine Paul and Timothy's ministry. These men tried to do exactly what Alan read earlier from number 16 with Korah's rebellion. They were trying to undermine Moses and Aaron, and these false teachers were trying to undermine Paul and Timothy. I just see a sampling of what type of teaching and what type of character these men had. I want you to hold your place in 2 Timothy. We don't do this very often, but it's useful. I want you to turn back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy 1, verses 3 to 7. Paul writes in his opening letter to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. That word actually means suspicions and doubts in one's mind. By the way, it's the devil that confuses Christians, not God rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse 6, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. It means idle and senseless talk. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In other words, these false teachers were presuming teaching roles in the church. And they were the least qualified for it. They were disqualified. They were off base and they were unfit for teaching in Christ's church. They desired to be teachers of the law and they did not even understand what they were teaching. Friends, that is not the type of teachers and preachers you and I want to listen to. Look over at 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And then look down at 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Friends, these false teachers that Timothy was up against, 
They were both an error in their teaching and they were corrupt in their character. They were liars about what God's word says and they were liars who suppressed their sin. Friends, anytime we're living in sin, it will eventually begin to change our theology and our life. Let me say that again. Anytime, if we are playing with sin, we're trying to live a double life, we're trying to fake it to make it, eventually that sin will begin twisting our theology. Look at what happened to Andy Stanley over the last 15 years. Look how many men who have written books that I used to read who have apostatized, who affirm things God detests. Friends, it can happen so subtly. When we begin playing with sin, we will begin twisting Scripture to serve our agenda. Somewhere along the way, watered-down preaching is the result of sliding into the mud of sin in private. Pray that that does not happen here. Turn over to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 5. First Timothy 6, starting in verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce, this is what these false teachers were producing, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Friends, underneath the hood of these false teachers was a preoccupation with a love for self. They were using their ministries and people's money as a way to fleece the sheep and feed their pride. And look down at 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is called knowledge, for by it some... For by professing it, some have swerved from the truth. Now go ahead to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. I'll show you one more. We're going to cover this in a few weeks. 2 Timothy 2.23. Paul has a lot to say about these false teachers and their rhetoric. 2 Timothy 2.23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Friends, if you take all these verses together, and we're putting the, the, the ammo in the gun behind verse 14 of what these words were that Paul was concerned that the congregation does not need to indulge in. If you put them all together, uh, these false teachers in our modern day would have infiltrated the podcast, infiltrated the bookstores, infiltrated our social media feeds, infiltrated the back door of the deacon body and into the homes of some of the congregants in Ephesus. And to some degree, they had even gained platforms for teaching within the congregation and they were pumping their toxicity into the church's water supply, and it was getting bad. So what does Paul do? This is serious stuff. This is the church he planted. And he's having to tell Timothy, son, things are getting really bad. Well, Paul responds like any true man of God would, who cares about Christ and who cares about his church. Paul's concerned. He's so concerned that he instructs, he exhorts, and he puts this urgent concern before Timothy's desk in the form of two letters, First and Second Timothy. And he writes these letters in order that Timothy would warn the congregation of the dangers of tolerating these false teachers and listening to their seductive and poisonous speech. Listen again. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. But what kind of speech should we not indulge in? What kind of conversations, what types of voices should we not listen to? Well, according to verse 14, speech that does no good to another person. Speech that is not helpful, speech that is not profitable, speech that is not edifying, speech that is not useful. Otherwise, the speech we're uttering or even tolerating could be hurting us spiritually as we're listening to it. 
and it could be hurting others in the church that are listening to it. This is the kind of speech that are just fruitless arguments that are going nowhere. It's beating a dead horse that needs to just die and stay in the ground. Prideful debates that care nothing about another person's spiritual well-being, but only demanding to be heard and affirmed. Uh, Friends, we should stay away and stay deaf to entertaining such toxic rhetoric. For Paul says in verse 14, it only ruins the hearers. For those of you who like word studies, the word ruin here is where we get our Greek word catastrophe. Catastrophe. It means to overturn like a city, like what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. He overturned. He he brought a catastrophe of judgment upon them. Well, in the spiritual sense of the word, it means to lead people to wander away from the Christian faith, to bring catastrophic damage, even leading some to depart from the faith altogether. They will be the ones Paul mentions back in verse 12, those who deny Christ and those whom Christ will deny on the last day. Brothers and sisters, how are you and I doing obeying verse 14 in our life? Are we known by others as life givers and sources of blessing with our speech? Or are we known as big mouths, argumentative, unappeasable, contentious, like the false teachers demanding to have our voice heard? Are we known for building bridges with edifying speech to keep the main thing the main thing? Or do we make mountains out of molehills and thus run the risk of ruining our hearers and bringing others down? Andreas Kostenberger warns us to this end. He writes, Believers today should avoid those who are self-absorbed, love to hear themselves talk, and are more interested in minor quibbles than in evangelizing the loss or building up the church. Beloved, we should avoid indulging people and conversations that distract us from the Great Commission, because that will only bring us down. It will only ruin the hearers. Friends, one way to proactively apply this to our lives is pray for humility And pray for discernment before you enter into a theological discussion. Don't come into arguments or disputes with people who are already kind of the pumps primed with an axe to grind. Pray for discernment of whether or not you should even be in that conversation. Humility to know whether or not if this is even going to be edifying and useful. And we should ask ourselves, If I enter in this conversation, am I growing, am I wanting to grow deeper in my understanding of the word? Or am I simply just trying to stump someone or out-argue them? Uh, Friends, it's also a good word of wisdom here. If you're leading a Bible study, a group discussion, or a meeting with other believers in the church, uh, this verse is very important for us as well. You and I must be able to exercise quality control over the room, lest it get way out of hand real fast. If a man or woman begins ranting about topics or subjects largely unrelated to whatever the subject is at hand, especially about things that are heated, divisive, and could be better discussed in a different context, you as the leader of that classroom, of that meeting, must be able to manage it, or it could lead to bad consequences. Uh, Just a personal story from my own life. Julie, you may remember this. Sometime in my early to mid-20s, I was not a pastor yet, I was in a Sunday school classroom where honestly I can't even remember now what the Sunday school teacher was teaching, but all of a sudden a passionate frenzy arose when a very, I would just say, argumentative man, every church seems to kind of have one or two every once in a while, spoke up in the back of the room and before we knew it, There was an all-out argument and debate about speaking in tongues, Calvinism, can deacons drink alcohol, to whether or not you can lose your salvation, and the next thing I know, Julie is elbowing me in the ribs going, honey, do something. 
I'm like, do what? I mean, this stuff's like a circus. Well, friends, that's exactly what was going on in Ephesus. It was just contentious, argumentative, peripheral, non-biblical things going on. They were not built up. They were ruining the hearers. Friends, that's not the kind of classroom, those are not the kind of meetings we want to have in our church. And friends, that includes the conversations we have about our church, even inside our homes, because it can ruin the hearers. Friends, Paul instructed Timothy to warn them for their spiritual protection by avoiding fruitless arguments. Paul then moves from the negative to the positive. Pastoral duty number two, Timothy was to work hard at teaching God's word accurately. Look at what Paul says to Timothy he must do next. Verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Some of your translations might even say, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Let me ask you a question. If you knew you had to get surgery on your eye, on your brain, on your heart? What kind of surgeon would you want working on those body parts? If you were getting ready for a big event with your family and your toilets were overflowing and you had to call someone to fix it right away, what kind of plumber would you want working on your home? Free marketing for you, fellas. If you were getting your hair done a certain way for a very important day that will never be repeated, what kind of hairstylist or barber would you want cutting your hair? Well, now let's all answer the questions. Well, most of us would want an excellent surgeon who knew exactly what he or she was doing and would do that surgery with precision and accuracy and not sloppy or trying to wing it. It's your eye. It's your heart. It's your brain. We would want a skilled and knowledgeable plumber who could efficiently fix the problem and that we didn't have to worry about calling another plumber to do it a second time because it wasn't done right the first time. And friends, we would want someone who knows how to cut the hair the way we like it and not botch it and look like dumb and dumber, you know, Lloyd haircuts. Friends, in the same way, what kind of preaching, what kind of teaching do you want for the spiritual diet for your soul and your family? Or we could ask it this way. Of all things you want in the man behind this pulpit, what is number one on your wish list? Author and preacher Paul Washer is rarely bashful on admitting what he wants in his main preaching pastor. Listen to Mr. Washer. Quote, The main preaching pastors in the churches to which I have belonged have always given themselves to study. In one church to which I belonged, I talked to the other leaders regarding the preaching pastor and said this, Please do this one thing. Take as much of the burden off that brother as we possibly can and let him live in the study with God because I have got children out here. And the greatest gift that man could give to me is to study to show himself approved and to come out in that pulpit in the power of the Holy Spirit and proclaim, thus saith the Lord, correcting and rebuking, giving great promises and warnings. Please do that for me. Brothers and sisters, every Christian in this room should desire in their main preaching pastor and from the overall preaching diet in their church a hard-working, faithful expositor of God's word. You should want, pray for, financially support, humbly follow a pastor-teacher who handles God's word carefully and accurately to show us how to apply it to our life. with more concern than you would even a surgeon working on your body. Why is that? A good surgeon can fix a dying body, but it's a physician of the soul that handles the word that feeds your soul that will last forever. So many churches are starving 
because they have lost sight of what they should most want behind the pulpit. If eternity is in the balance, our spiritual well-being is far more important than plumbing, hair, or a surgeon. And that's precisely what Paul instructs Timothy to do. There's all this false rhetoric, all this nonsense, all this vomit. People are divisive and contentious. And he says, Timothy, warn them, but teach them. In contrast to tolerating, entertaining, or contributing to the fruitless controversies in the church, Timothy was to raise the bar. He was to set the example. He was to set the temperature in the room to white, hot, spiritual fervor of the things God wants his people to be fired up about. And what are those things that God wants his people to be fired up about? Well, notice what he told Timothy. To rightly handle the word of truth. Not the word of funny stories. Not the word of men. Not the word that always tickles my ears. But the word that steps on my toes and gives me life. The word of truth. It's another phrase in the New Testament to speak of the gospel and all sound doctrine that flows from it. Friends, it's the truth that we as a church should be wanting as number one on our church wish lists. It's the truth, not programs. It's the truth, not pleasing men. It's the truth, not trying to keep up with the Joneses. It's the truth, it's the truth, it's the truth. We need the truth from the true and living God. It's hearing the truth taught clearly, faithfully, and boldly. It's knowing the truth and believing it from the heart that we should be earnestly asking God to work inside of all of us, not in pretense, but show real fruit from our life. It's applying the truth to every aspect of our life, our thought life, our money, our individual lives, our marriages, our parenting, our work ethics, how the church should function, all our discipling relationships, every ministry under this roof, all of it, in everything, we want the truth. As John MacArthur says, heresy cannot save or sanctify anyone. Truth can save and truth can sanctify anyone. The truth that is found in God's self-disclosure, the truth that is found in God's revealed word in the scriptures, the truth that is found in Jesus Christ, his son. To my non-Christian friend, the most loving thing we as a church can give you Kids, the most loving thing your parents and these church members can give you is knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The first step to knowing the truth is knowing the truth about our sin against this truth-telling God. Friends, we've all sinned. We deserve to be swallowed up with Korah and his rebellion. Every single one of us. That's all we deserve. We have all missed the mark of God's standard of perfection. We have all used our lips to destroy, to divide, and to harm, and to hurt. Friends, look at all of God's commands and ask yourself, have you obeyed them all perfectly? Well, I know I haven't. And you haven't either. Your own conscience bears witness daily. So what should we do? Well, the bad news is that God is true and we are liars. And we're going to face this truth-telling God in all his holiness. But the good news of the gospel is that God loves us so much that he's told us the truth. He's warned us ahead of time. Hell is real. Punishment is coming. And yet there is a Savior in my Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true light who has come into our darkness to show us who the truth is, and that is knowing Jesus Christ. Friends, when we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, who bore our punishment, 
that we deserved on the cross, and then God raised him from the dead. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, calling all of us to turn from our wicked ways and find rest and refuge in him. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. To live life in rebellion to Jesus is slavery. To live life in submission to Jesus is freedom. Be reconciled to God today. He is the truth, and he is a God of love who will teach you to love the truth. Back to verse 15. So how would Timothy, a fallible man, just like me, just like you, who's not perfect, be used of God to deliver God's word of truth to God's people with accuracy. Well, he begins by telling Timothy, do your best or be diligent. The Greek word here is spudadso. There's a word when you're eating tacos today. It means make every effort to be earnest towards a task, to give your absolute best effort. Paul uses the same word in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. He says, do your best to come to me soon, 2 Timothy 4.9. Do your best to come before winter, 2 Timothy 4.21. Timothy was to do his best in his studies, not give the people scraps, not give the people leftovers, but to give them real meat. And he was to do so with God as his primary and first audience to please. To study, to show yourself a workman unto God who has been approved. After Timothy was to give himself to rigorous, reflective, laborious study, Paul says, by God's grace, Timothy, you would be an effective, qualified, reliable teacher, having no reason to be ashamed, no reason to have regret, and no reason to think you're coming under God's judgment. But what does that exactly mean then? What does it mean to rightly handle the word of truth? Or your translation might say dividing the word of truth. Well, the word literally means cutting it straight. The Greek word for you physicians out here comes from our our word orthos, which is the same word from which we get orthopedic or orthodoxy. Thus, Paul's charge to Timothy was this goal in mind, to proclaim and teach the word of truth without deviation, straight, and undiluted. I like how Brian Chappell exhorts pastors to obey 2 Timothy 2.15. This would be a great one to put on a sign in front of the pulpit. He says, we must get it straight and give it straight. We must get it straight. We must give it straight. Well, friends, how can we all, whether we're behind the pulpit or in the pew, how can we be proactive supporters of this kind of teaching ministry in the church? How should you and I respond to the preacher-teacher if they get it straight and give it to us straight? Let me give you three words of advice. Number one, be thankful. Be thankful. T. David Gord emphasizes how good preaching is not as commonplace as you may think it is. He says, I have come to recognize that many individuals today have never been under a steady diet of competent preaching. As a consequence, they are satisfied with what they hear because they have nothing better with which to compare it. Therefore, for many individuals, the kettle in which they live has always been at the boiling point, and they've simply adjusted to it. As starving children in Manila sift through the landfill for food, Christians in many churches today have never experienced genuinely soul-nurturing preaching, and so they just pick away at what is available to them, trying to find a morsel of spiritual sustenance or healthful counsel here or there. Sound, careful, accurate exposition of the scriptures is a gift from God. And therefore, we should be thankful if God has given us the privilege to sit under it and benefit from it. I know I have in my life. I would not be where I'm at today if it wasn't for God putting faithful expositors in my path. Number two, how do we respond to faithful, accurate teaching? Be an eager and engaged expositional listener. Be an eager and engaged expositional listener. 
There are many churches out there that have the preaching diet is basically this. Keep it short, keep it sweet, make it funny, and don't go deep. But beloved, shallow preaching will produce shallow Christians. Superficial teaching will inevitably produce superficial Bible readers in the congregation. If you and I are blessed to sit under faithful expositional preaching, and I have in my life, you and I have a responsibility before God to be expositional listeners. So I remember a brother named Mr. Edward. He liked to give it to me straight. He was in his early 60s, and he wanted to come check me out in my first pastorate. That was just his way of going, I'm just going to make sure you stay on track, young man. He said, Brother Blake, you put in your 20 plus hours in the study and I'll put in my eight. I'm going to come ready for Sunday, but you come ready for Sunday. That's a man that works six days a week in a concrete business. You put in your 20 plus, I'll put in my eight. He was talking about eight hours of reading the text. I'm not saying that y'all have to do that. But if the preacher up here is putting 15, 20, 25 plus hours in the preaching of the word, should we not show some level of hard work in our listening, in our preparation? So how do we get better at expositional listening? Get a good night of sleep beforehand. Get a good night of sleep beforehand. If you need some caffeine, let that run through your veins. I'll leave that up to you and Jesus. Secondly, ask God to speak to you through his word and to convict you. Ask God to speak to you through his word and convict you. Christopher Ashe says this, to listen humbly is to admit that the Bible is right and I am wrong, that God is God and I need to change. Consider reading the passage beforehand multiple times. Consider reading the passage beforehand multiple times. Those who prepare their hearts and minds beforehand already have the oven preheated. Take notes and discuss the message with others afterwards in edifying ways. Take notes and discuss the message afterwards in edifying ways. What hit you could double-click on what hit someone else's heart. The longer you let the sermon sit on your heart, the more it will shape and impact you throughout the week. Or as an aside, uh, I can say this now after three years. If you ever want to give a hearty amen, it is encouraging for the preacher that lets me know you're listening. Or a holy Baptist grunt. Mm. I've heard all sorts of things in preaching. Come on, preacher. Come on now. Oh, yeah, keep it up. I've heard everything. You don't have to fake it, but a little bit of voice feedback, I like it. Oh, well, okay. We're going we're to have a holy grunt class tonight at 5 o'clock. A uh, third way to respond to sound teaching is pray for your preachers and teachers to set a good example. Pray for your preachers and teachers to set a good example. It's very common in seminary classes and pastor training ministries to hear the following challenge to aspiring preachers. A congregation will only be as careful with the word as you are in the pulpit. Hence why Jesus said, Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. That's one reason why James 3.1 is such a daunting verse for us to stare at. James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not surprising a man who is qualified to serve as an elder in Christ's church, he must be able to to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2. Some level of training and skill is required, not just raw intention and passion. So if you're sitting here and you're going, Blake, well, I don't really aspire to be a preacher and God's word would forbid it, perhaps. How can I grow better in my handling of God's word? Well, there's certainly seminary classes, pastoral internships, the Simeon Trust preaching and teaching workshop. But friends, even just by sitting under a sound expositor, Year after year after year after year in the local church, you will grow under that teaching simply by what's modeled, listening to how the text is explained and applied. That's why it is so important to join a healthy church that has a very high view of the pulpit. 
A healthy church is formed by a healthy diet of sound preaching. You ever heard the word hermeneutics? Raise your hand if you have. I raise your hand if you're thinking Herman who? Okay, we had some honesty and humility here. Any adults want to join that? Cameron's okay. Come on, front row, you got to be honest here. Hermeneutics is just a fancy schmancy word for the discipline of accurately interpreting Scripture. So what would good hermeneutics sound like? It would sound like this. Show me the book of the Bible. Show me the chapter in that book. Show me the verse and the verses that surround it. And show me its immediate context and where it fits in the canon and the rest of the Bible. Then through prayer and asking good questions of the text, you can derive the true meaning that the author was intending to convey. That's biblical hermeneutics. Or as my sweatshirt that I'm currently wearing this fall says, book, chapter, verse, context, please. That's exegesis. That's getting your meaning, drawing out the well of God's wisdom from the text rather than smashing and diving headfirst our meaning into the text. But what would sloppy hermeneutics look like? The kind of interpretation you want to run from. Sounds like this. This is how this verse makes me feel. Here's what I think this verse means and how it makes me feel. This is how I was raised to think. Here's my life experiences. This is the tradition I grew up in. So this verse means fill in the blank. Friends, that's not how you and I want to study the scriptures. Doing your best, being diligent, working hard, working unto the Lord is a very, very important task for the preacher and the members in the pew. I like how Jonathan Edwards, around 19 years old, made 70 resolutions, and here was one of them. Resolution 28, resolved to study the scriptures so readily, so steadily, and so frequently that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of them. Timothy was to work hard at teaching the truth accurately because a lot of falsehood had infiltrated the church. Which leads to pastoral duty number three. Timothy was to identify problem makers in the church and warn others of their dangerous influence. Look at me, verses 16 to 18. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. When should a pastor or elders in a church bring a public charge towards someone who is a problem maker in the church? When should a church mark and avoid certain people because of their erroneous teaching or ungodly lifestyles? Well, we have to ask leading questions, right? And I think it's drawn from these texts. How wide is their influence in affecting the church? Is it affecting three people, or is it affecting 30 or 300 people? What is the seriousness of the sin committed? And are they repentant when confronted and corrected? Here in verses 16 to 18, Paul shows that the divisive, contentious chatter from verse 14 had reached a whole nother level in verse 16. Their ungodly and unrepentant teaching and behavior was leading others towards more and more ungodliness. In other words, their bad examples were impacting many others around them. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So much that Paul describes their sin, listen to this, like gangrene, spreading around like a cancerous disease that unless dealt with and removed from the body, it could literally destroy the church. And here Paul goes so far as to name the culprits. He calls them out. The ones who are causing the problems. Problem maker number one, Hymenaeus. I wouldn't name your cat or dog that this year. Paul had excommunicated Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy 1.20. That means he publicly warned the church, this dude's a wolf. 
Unless he repents, he's heading to the highway to hell. And this dude was still not repentant, still causing problems in Ephesus. And then there was his sidekick, Philetus. And we know nothing about Philetus. He probably just tagged along and went with his crony. Both of these men were misleading people in the church about the nature of the resurrection. So we read those affirmations and denials earlier. What do we affirm? What do we deny? What do we affirm? What do we deny? It's important to understand a biblical understanding of the resurrection. You get the resurrection wrong, you gut the gospel. You gut the gospel, we have no salvation. These men, whatever their false teaching was, whether they were saying that the resurrection already happened, Jesus came back and everyone was left and they were some kind of special chosen, or that the resurrection was just something spiritual and spiritually inside, but there was no future hope. There was no future glorification day. There was no future day coming. Whatever it was, Paul says it was upsetting the faith of some. Baby Christians are prey for false teachers' lies. Baby Christians can get jerked around by hearsay and half-truths, and they can upset the faith of these precious souls. Brothers and sisters, a healthy church is not a church without problems and sin. A healthy church faithfully, or at least aims to, deal with their problems and sins in a biblical way. For Paul, these guys were major problem makers in the church. Their contagious influence was wide. Their bad teaching was spreading. Their following was growing. So Paul called them out by name to warn the congregation of their dangerous influence. Why did Paul do that? Was it because Paul was a bully? Was it because Paul was self-righteous? He didn't think he had any sin. No, he did it out of love. He feared God more than men. He loved Christ more than the praise of men. And he realized that in obedience to Jesus, he needed to verbally, specifically, call out these bad problem makers in the church. Friends, biblical love does not look down on people for their sin, but biblical love tells the truth about their sin seeing that we want their repentance and their obedience to Christ more than their approval of us. Members of CCBC, pray that we would be faithful and biblical in how we handle problems and sin in the church too. Pray that it would be God who we aim to please. Pray that we would eagerly desire to protect our church from sinful disunity, from wolves and false converts living in unrepentant sin. Friends, Timothy had his work cut out for him, didn't he? And so do we. So we need a reassuring promise that God will keep us confident each step of the way, which leads to our last point. One reassuring promise. God is in ultimate control, and he knows who belongs to him. Look at verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands... Bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I don't know about you, but I'm not the best at finding old Waldo in those Where Waldo book. My sons could run circles around me in that game. It takes me a while to find that skinny guy with that goofy outfit. Sometimes I'm just completely stumped, but once I find that dude, I know where to find him next time I'm on that page. But if I were to grab a family photo of my family, it takes me two seconds to identify everyone in the picture. Why the difference? Because I know them personally. I know them intimately. I've spent more hours with my family, making memories with them, living with them, than most other people in my life. There's no where's Waldo dilemmas for me when I'm looking at a family photo. I know the family that I belong to and the family that belongs to me. Well, friends, the same is true for the Lord. There is never a where's Waldo 
for him when he's looking at his church. He knows every child that belongs to him and he knows them by name. Christ's blood was shed for them. Friends, he knows who belongs to him. He knows those who he has chosen to save before the foundation of the earth. But for us, it's not always that clear. Sometimes we meet people in our lives, they maybe even join the church or whatever. Or maybe they're just in our families or we get to know them throughout our lives. And we start scratching our heads. I'm not really sure if this person is a Christian. It leaves us puzzled, pausing, looking for fruit for a long time and wondering, do they really know the Lord? Timothy had to face that in his church. So Paul told him to hang his hat on this. The foundation and cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ. And the seal of ownership of the church belongs ultimately to the triune God. Which means that the church is first God's church before it is our church. And if we love Jesus' church, we will do whatever he commands in order to preserve the unity of the worship and witness we have before God. Friends, sometimes we are fooled by counterfeits and false converts, but God is not. So those of us who do know the Lord, what are we held responsible to? Look what he says. All of those who call on the name of the Lord should depart from iniquity. Repent of known sin in our life. David Clarkson once said, Avoid all that Christ hates and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. When Christ speaks, do not act as if you did not hear. Members of CCBC, how do we not repeat the same errors of biblical faithlessness that leads people astray from Christ? How do we not repeat the same folly of preference-driven church membership which can lead to a church's decline and death? Well, we just need to ask, what does the Bible say? And we do what he commands. Because if we love Jesus' church, we will do whatever he commands in order to preserve our church's worship and witness before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in 2 Timothy 2, we are given a very, very graphic and hard but clear teaching on the importance of knowing the word of truth and teaching it accurately. Father, in the midst of problems and misunderstandings and division and chaos that can happen in every aspect of our life, whether that's in government or our homes or our churches or our schools or the workplace, Father, we of all people need to know what the word says so that we can clearly teach others and apply it to our life. Lord, we pray here at CCBC, you would guard us from error, that we would own it when we do go into error, and Lord, that we would have that reassuring promise fresh on our hearts, that you know who belongs to you, and we who know you should depart from our sin. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.